What is going on? Welcome back. I am happy to be back to another episode of Unzerped. This, uh, the episode you're about to listen to was recorded at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I sat with Baruth Kanun. Uh, Baruth completed his undergrad at Rutgers in physics, and he moved on to MIT, where he is in the graduate program for electrical engineering and computer sciences here at MIT. He is the recipient of the Irwin, Mark Jacobs, and Joan Klein Jacobs Presidential Fellowship. He is a brilliant young man, tons of passion, cares about his field, and wants to spread the good word about science. So uh, welcome again, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Unzerped, the vision of Nick Zerpoli. Bringing you real people, real conversations. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Unzerped. And now, your host, the one, the only, Nick Zerpoli. All right, Unzerped, uh, another episode. I am so excited to be here. I am at MIT, and we are going to be talking with Baruth Kanun. Did I get that right? Yeah, Barth. Barth. And uh, he's a second-year grad student at MIT. Uh, humble beginnings at Rutgers University from the great state of New Jersey. Yep. Uh, this is uh, – I feel like we know each other way better now. <laughs> I, we, we, we spent the last couple of hours just chatting, and uh, now the show is off to a start. I, I feel like um, – I, I feel very humbled to be here. Uh, you know, if you know me or if you don't, you know that I'm active-duty military – which Thank has you for your service. Thank you. And I actually said, you know, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you thanking me for my service, but I, I think what I do is easy, and what you do as a scientist is is very difficult, and um, I Thanks. just want to thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and it's funny how we got here. Um, this is uh, my fifth episode, and I've been – I've got to be honest. I've been struggling to find the right person to get on the show – because I want to, I don't want this just to be a conversation. I don't want to have a podcast for the sake of having a podcast. I want to make somewhat of a difference. I want to connect people. And I went out on a limb and I, I Googled, you know, we're talking quantum computing today. Well, we're going to get there, I should say. We're, we're, gonna, we're going to be talking quantum computing. But um, I went out on a limb. I Googled quantum computing Boston. And I came up to the MIT website. I did some cold, I did the, the now version of cold calling. I cold emailed. <laughs> and uh and I got a response and here we are and you know I couldn't be happier to be here and spread the word because quantum computing to a non physicist to a non scientist is so overwhelming and there's a lot of there's a lot of hoopla out there a lot of rumors a, a lot of uh I don't want to use the word propaganda but there's just a lot of information out there and I think the goal of today's show is we're going to quell some of that we're going to put some reality into it and I'm an amateur podcaster. You're a second-year grad student, uh, and I, I think I don't want to say we're on the same level, but we're learning together. Yep. You know, and and I'm excited. So, uh, one of the things that I emailed you when we first started was the video, and I'm just going to touch on the video. So, if people are in the car, they can't listen to it right now, or they can't watch it right now. Uh, but if they're at home, or if they're at their office. We're talking about Jordy Rose, and he did a quantum computing video. It's on YouTube. Uh, it's titled, Jordy Rose, Quantum Computing, Artificial Intelligence is Here. 
And what Jordy really touches on is that quantum computing is going to be used to get to uh, another planet. That well, we're going to talk about some predictions here in a second. I don't want. I don't want. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. But let's talk about quantum computing. Let's break down what is quantum computing, and let's start there. Yeah. So I mean, I guess before talking quantum computing, we should speak a little bit about classical. Yes. Right? So classical computing. Um, so. In classical computers, you know, you have these little things called transistors, um, and they're basically really, really, really small switches. So they can either be on or off, zero or one. And by, uh, you know, this is called digital logic, you know, digital for being, you know, either zero or one, binary. Um, and this is how all the computers uh, that we use in our everyday lives operate. Um, and a quantum computer, um, so it's, a, it's quite a bit different, but also somewhat similar. Um, and that quantum computer uses, instead of computing on bits, it computes on quantum bits or qubits. And qubits uh, has the, the word bit in it, which means it also needs to be some sort of a two-state thing, right? It has to have some notion of zero and has to have some notion of one. But uh, one, of the, one of the things that makes a quantum computer quantum is the ability to have a qubit uh, be both zero and one at the same time. And this is uh, something that um, is a little bit difficult to explain using English. And um, I think that the English language was not developed to describe quantum mechanics. And that, that's what math is for. Um, and when I say you know something can be this and that at the same time, that might sound a little crazy. and there, I mean, that is crazy because it's not exactly what's going on. It's just the best thing, best words I can use in English to describe what's going on. Um, but yeah, so ha this ability to have uh, a, a qubit or something that stores information be both zero and one at the same time uh, seems to improve the uh, computational power of uh, the machine you're using, a quantum computer. And this quantum computer, you know, people think we can we can uh, solve many interesting problems uh, with it that a classical computer would not be able to solve. So that's the general gist of why we want quantum computers. And at MIT, what are you um, what are you specifically working on here? So there are many kinds of quantum computers. Um, so just to bring the analogy back to classical computers, um, I mentioned the transistor. Um, and we use what are known as uh, solid-state transistors, which is just you know some sort of material. It's a solid, and we can make uh, little switches out of them. But before transistors, there were what were known as vacuum tube, um, uh, va vacuum tubes. And vacuum tubes are essentially you have a beam of electron that goes from one side to the other. If if the electrons go all the way through, that's one. If they get stopped, that's zero. So it's just another kind of switch. And you can have mechanical computers as well. Did you just need some sort of form of having zero or one? A transistor is one in the end because you can make them really small. Okay. Um, so a quantum in quantum computing, there are many different you know ways to realize physically realize a qubit, um, and the way that I work on is superconducting quantum bits. So using superconductors, um, which is a fancy material that, uh, for example, has zero resistance um, and operates at temperatures extremely close to absolute zero and uh, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself 
but we can use these superconducting qubits uh, to make a quantum computer. But there are also other proposals that use diamond, for example, to realize a qubit, or uh, trapped uh, atomic, trapped, trapped, trapped atoms, basically, trapped ions, they're called. Um, so there are different ways to realize a qubit. And I specifically work on, I'm an experimentalist, and I work on superconducting qubits. So uh, thank you for explaining that, by the way. Yeah. So now a qubit, from what I understand, a qubit, and this is, goes back to what we were talking about before the show, show 1.0, a qubit, if it goes from 128, or if a bit goes from 128 to 512, it's not 128 times three or four times. 128 to 512 would be like half a million times faster. It's not, it's not, it's an exponential growth in speed. It's not. So that was regarding the cryptography. Oh, that's cryptography. That's cryptography. We'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get get to, that's one of the applications of quantum computers. Fair. Um, Yeah. All right, so let's. You want to dive into the video a little bit? Uh, sure. Or do you, okay. I mean, we, yeah, it's up to you. Well, continue explaining. All right, so, yeah. Um, yeah so you know, now that we have a, a nice uh, understanding of you know what what a, how a quantum computer differs from a classical computer, um, you might wonder uh, what can you do with a quantum computer. I was wondering that. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, how does the information? Yeah, please go. So. Uh, a quantum computer, you know, you might think I'm going to be running, you know, Google Chrome and watching some nice cat videos on my uh, quantum computer in three years. And I'll, I'll, I'm sorry to break the news, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's just not happening. Um, you're not going to be watching cat videos on a quantum computer. <laughs> um, but uh, so just to kind of give a story of how quantum computing uh, came to, you know, the, the physicists in the first place. There was a very famous physicist, Richard Feynman. Um, I believe in the 80s he proposed... um, It's very difficult to simulate materials using classical computers. Uh, And when you say materials, you're meaning meaning raw material. Like, for example, like a superconductor, right? Um, Like aluminum, right? I mean, if you want to describe... why aluminum, a normal metal, becomes a superconductor when you cool it down to really, really, really low temperatures, you know, it's it's a hard problem. Um, now, that one's solved, but simulating materials and molecules, uh, you know, chemistry and proteins and all these sorts of things is very, very hard to do using classical computers without making approximations. That's the thing. Many of the simulations we do using classical computers to describe these materials um, are done using approximations. Um, now, what a quantum computer would let you do is this material, if you zoom in far enough, it's a quantum object. You know, it's a bunch of atoms, it's electrons, it's protons, neutrons, um, and that's quantum mechanics. That's the world of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the world of the small. And it would be nice if we could use quantum mechanics to our advantage. So the thing that Richard Feynman proposed is why not build a computer that operates under the laws of quantum mechanics to simulate quantum mechanics itself or quantum mechanical objects. Um, And this was the original thing that kind of got it, you know, that that kicked it off. And it took a little bit of a turn in the 90s. Um, We found a new application for quantum computers. Uh, And when I say we, I mean Peter Shore, 
very brilliant mathematician um, who uh, during his time at Bell Labs uh, in the 90s, by the way, he's at MIT right now. He's a professor of math, I believe. Um, so yeah, when he was at Bell Labs in the mid 90s, he had two big breakthroughs that kind of started rushing in government funding for quantum computing research and kind of got the field really going on its feet. And the, I don't know which one came first, but one of them was this uh, Shores algorithm. And this is kind of the thing that you would see in all these mainstream media science uh, hyped websites uh, regarding the end of cryptography or the end of secure uh, security as we know it. And just to give a quick general description of uh, how you know the cryptography works right now is we have these really large numbers that are very difficult to uh, decode or factor into smaller numbers. But it's very easy to multiply two smaller numbers into a bigger number. So if I give you the two smaller numbers, then you can multiply it into a big number, but it's very hard for somebody else to figure out what numbers you use to multiply to get that really big number. Um, and using this, this is called RSA cryptography, and using this method, um, you can secure all sorts of things. So the bank industry use it. You can send secure messages to whoever you want. And as you increase the size of the number that you use, um, the time it takes for a classical computer to crack that code uh, rises exponentially. So if I have, now I don't know, th these numbers are not to scale, but if I have like say a 10-bit a, a uh, code might take like 15 minutes, but if I have a 20-bit code might take like a year. Now the codes that we uh, use right now, classical computers basically just can't break them within a reasonable amount of time. It'll take like thousands to the age of the universe, depending on how large you make that code. And if you make a computer that's even more powerful, a classical computer that's even more powerful that might break the current iteration, all you have to do is just increase the size of the number a little bit, and then that computer can't do it anymore. And it, it would take the age of the universe to solve it. But what Peter Shore did in the 90s is he came up with this thing called Shore's algor algorithm, which he showed that a quantum computer, a computer that uses quantum mechanics, can actually uh, break the codes very, very fast if you have a large enough quantum computer. And it doesn't scale exponentially. Um, so if you keep, if you keep increasing the, uh, if you increase the uh, size of your, uh, your RSA cryptography, um, the time will go up, but not exponentially. So I might go from one hour to two hours. And I can wait two hours and break all the banks in the world. Yeah, and that's uh, and just to touch on that, a Boston-based startup, uh, Whitewood Encryption Systems, they're trying to convince uh, companies to prepare themselves for a future that by adopting quantum-safe encryption technology, Whitewood, you know, they're, they're, they basically created a patent where it's called the Quantum Key Management System, mm -hmm. and they're making it easier for organizations to adopt quantum computer-resistant encryption without disrupting their wider network architecture. So, like... You know, I could see how, and we'll get into this later. I don't want to interrupt you too much because you're on a roll. But, but the, what's interesting is you you mentioned the '80s, the '90s, and now with the rise of quantum computing, quantum mechanics, or quantum mechanics and quantum computing becoming uh, even more of a reality because we're not there yet. We don't have we don't have we don't have universal quantum computers yet. But there's already 
startups working on potential ways to there are quite fend, a few startups yeah to fend off what possibly could go wrong with a quantum computing cracking so it's a whole research field known as post quantum uh, cryptography so so basically coming up we can actually there's there are ways in which you can use quantum mechanics uh, to you know do cryptography that a quantum computer cannot break so use quantum mechanics to secure against quantum mechanics <laughs> it's it's a it's a mess but uh yeah all right so so the video the video let's talk about predictions um and i like how you touched on the english language wasn't written to describe quantum mechanics yes that's what math is for this is something that if you watch the video you would have heard uh what's his name jordy jordy rose jordy rose this this is one of the things that he mentioned and i i, I thought is a, is a very very good um thing to say before we get into the predictions though they do talk about those two and i'm i'm just layman's term is i'm breaking this down at d-wave right D-wave, they have yes. those two massive boxes that they say are inside the box operating at absolute zero and we touched on that for a second so they use superconducting quantum computers uh, or qu- superconducting qubits, which is qubits, the, the right. one that I... But they're I, not actually, not to be confused, and I think that's what happened when, when a lot of people may have watched this video, which is almost at a half a million views. They think these are actual quantum computers, and they're they're not exactly a quantum computer. It's a, they are, so it's a class of quantum computers. Um, so there, there, there are multiple kinds of quantum computers, and the one that D-Wave have is, has is known as a quantum annealer. And a quantum annealer is essentially um, you want to solve a really hard optimization problem. So think of you know Google Maps. You want to get from point A to point B. What's the shortest path? Um, and there are ways of converting these problems um, into a, a quantum description. So you you tell me some problem, and I can write down something using the laws of quantum mechanics that describes that problem. And then I can take that model and I can make a circuit, a superconducting qubit circuit uh, that emulates that model. Right. And let's, I'm going to circle back because um, I, I think some people might be thinking when you say quantum computer, you think I go on a keyboard and I type in, I type in a yeah, problem. That is not what we're talking not, about. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we break that down before we even go even further? So we're not talking, I have a, I have a laptop that is now a quantum computer laptop where I type a problem in and it, because of quantum mechanics, it's going to break it down. That's not what we're talking about. That's why the, the, so the, the quantum annealer is essentially you can do a conversion between, so you can give me a problem and I can, I can find a model that, you know, maps that problem and then i can actually build a physical circuit right that's what and that's what we're talking about with your work with in terms of like the work that you're doing yes and that's that's how all this all ties together so you you have to so you have to build the circuit first yes you got to build the processor right and a universal quantum computer is basically you just build a circuit that can emulate any quantum model that you want whereas a quantum annealer need not be universal it might be hardware locked. So, for example, this one chip can only emulate this one problem, whereas a universal quantum computer is this one chip can emulate many problems. Got it. So and- the one that D-Wave has um, is, is this quantum annealer, which is not universal. Um, 
But what they do is they just use a lot of superconducting circuits, uh, sorry, superconducting qubits um, to see if they can solve some problem faster than a classical, solve some optimization problem faster than a, than a classical computer. And they haven't, they haven't shown the quantum speed up yet. And um, quantum speed up is the whole purpose. Yes. You want the quantum to be faster than the classical. Because if not, then what's the point? Right. And just, uh, sorry. No, just, go ahead. Uh, no, yeah, don't yeah, be so sorry. Keep just going. Yeah. For, for, for the general audience, just to get a general idea of how uh, a optimization problem is solved using what's known as an annealer, uh, there's, there is such a thing known as a classical annealer. Um, and you can, you can think of it as you're standing at the top of a set of hills, right? And the hills vary in height. Um, and you have a ball and you drop the ball. What's going to happen to the ball? It's going to want to tend towards the lowest hill. And hopefully, at the very end, the ball will be in the lowest hill, and its location is the solution to the problem. So that's a classical annealer. Um, a quantum annealer takes advantage of the laws of quantum mechanics to help improve uh, finding that minimum point. And then once you get to that minimum point, then that's the solution to your optimization problem. It's fact. It's almost yeah. That's that's a perfect way to describe it. And I think uh, I th- well, go ahead. What are you going to oh, say? Oh yeah. So oh, this yeah. is different than the cryptography thing as well. Right. They're completely yeah. separate. So the cryptography thing would be implemented in this universal quantum computer, um, which is which can solve many problems, right? But the the quantum annealer is kind of its own thing. It's it's a subset of quantum computers. Got it. So prediction number one from the video was, and at any time. If you need, if we want to go back, you know, we don't have to just launch into another conversation. If we want to go back down to breaking this down, I'm okay with that because, like I said, it can go over your head very easily. Right, Not your head, my <laughs> head. So, prediction number one by Jordy Rose was by 2018. So, in four months, five months, NASA will have found a planet with oceans of liquid water and Earth-like atmosphere within 40 light years of Earth using a quantum computer. Serious discussions about going there will begin. So, I think it's clear that that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he gave this talk in 2015. Fair. Um, so let's let's give him some benefit of the doubt. But um, so what, when he says that, I think what he's trying to get across is that just like when we first made uh, classical computers, you know, we did not envision what all the like. So, so many things that we're using them for. Like nobody envisioned an iPhone when they made the first transistor, right? Uh, but look at how far it's taken us. Um, so when he says that, you know, I think he's, he's trying to go along the lines of we're going to build this quantum computer and it's going to be able to solve problems, maybe simulate new molecules for fuel, right? So we might be able to get super efficient fuel by, you know, simulating quantum mo- like molecules which follow quantum mechanics and get really efficient fuel that might take us to Mars or might take us to some other planet. Um, so it's not a direct... Or even discovering. Or even discovering. No, not, yeah, never yeah. mind even getting there. Not, Just yeah, use, yeah. Using, using materials to discover said planet with oceans. Yeah. And then using quantum c- computing to then figure out the most efficient way back down to factor all the way down to the bottom of the hill, as we said earlier, to get there. That he's he's yeah. he's illustrating a vision for what quantum computing can do. Not necessarily. I mean, it is a bold prediction, though. It is a bold prediction, and 
Yeah. It, it, it. <laughs> I know that you're a second level. I mean, I, it, I know that you're in your second year of, uh, of graduate studies, but is this even at the top of MIT? Is this something, uh, this is nothing anybody's talking about right now. No, at this point, we're just trying to, we're, we're, we're just putting together small quantum computers, like five qubits, you know, can we get five cube? Can we do something useful with five qubits? Can we do something useful with 50 qubits compared to the billion transistors inside of your laptop? Yeah, I guess it's just so easy to look back and say we never thought uh, a computer would be an extension of ourselves. Yes. So if you look at it from the perspective of what we've done since, I don't know, when was the first computer developed? When there were those massive boxes in rooms for the government uh, 40, 50 years ago? I think, I mean, they had like uh, classical computers uh, that were mechanical, so they didn't, they didn't use uh, transist- like elect- electric-based transistors. Um, in fact... Fun fact: um, <laughs> The world's first uh, programmable computer from IBM uh, is located at Harvard University in the Science Center. Oh wow! So if anybody's ever in Cambridge, I recommend go looking at it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, it's hard to imagine what you're going to do with these quantum computers once you have them. We no have one, some ideas, right? And this is an idea. This is an idea, and it's. I mean, it's a good idea. It, I would... It's not going to be. We have a quantum computer. Now we're going to Mars. <laughs> I, I like how dramatic the serious discussions about going there will begin is. Yeah. And, and I think this kind of leads into the uh, the, the second prediction about um, alternate universes. Maybe we'll, we'll get to the second prediction. Well, let's go to the second prediction and we'll talk about that. And, you know, we'll talk about resources. I mean, that's that's what's on everybody's mind, right? If you're... If you're talking about, and we'll dive into this, I'm sure, agriculture, you're talking about food, right? Food, fuel, water. What do we need to survive on this planet, right? We need to feed people, uh, we need energy, and we need clean water. And if we run out of those resources, what do we do? I, I, I think what he's trying to discuss here from my perspective is it is a known fact that we are running out of resources on this planet. And depending on who you talk to, if you talk to a nutritionist, they're going to say, you better become a vegan because we're running out of meat, right? If, if you talk to a fisherman or, you know, someone in uh, – well, I've talked to a fisherman. But if you're talking to somebody in um, who deals with oceans – and I, the, the word escapes me right now that I can't even think about what that is. But it's going to be don't eat fish. There's too much mercury. Or we're overfishing our waters. We're killing 100 million sharks a year, right? So I think what this gentleman's doing – or Georgie wrote – Georgie Rose, Jordy Rose, he's trying to give people hope that there's potential for more resources. And then that leads into the second prediction of um, by 2023, so we're talking six years from now, a major breakthrough in physics will occur based on a model whose cornerstone is the reality of a parallel universe. An experiment will be performed on a quantum computer that will support the new theory. And what he does here, he talks about light, right? The, the test... Um, when he's talking about Albert Einstein and how you can prove that there's uh, uh, in terms of like an alternate reality by the refraction of light oh the double slit experiment the double slit experiment using right. electrons yeah okay so prediction number two what do you think uh, what, what, when so, you hear parallel universe you think this is, tell me if I'm wrong you hear ones and O's right with computing and then you hear the one existing as a one and an O Mm-hmm. And if you, com- what I'm thinking is, if you continue to multiply 
the one and the O existing in two places at the same time, it could technically never end. Is that what kind of where he's going with that in a layman's terms? So, and I know I'm breaking that down. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but go ahead. So in quantum mechanics, um, there are there are things known as interpretations of quantum mechanics, and essentially, the physics can only describe to a, up to what you can observe, right? Um, and beyond that, uh, you know, if you can't experimentally observe something, how do you prove it? Prove it, right? Right. Um, so that's where the, the the interpretations come in, and the most common one is known as the Copenhagen interpretation, which is just uh, shut up, don't think about it, just do the math. It's right. We know it's right. We tested it. Just just take it as it is, and it works. And it's you know it's it's fantastic. Um, but then there's you know there's more uh, out there uh, interpretations. Uh, one of them being the multiverse uh, interpretation or this many worlds or uh, interpretation where every time you so the quantum object is both zero and one and then you measure it and it becomes either zero or one so you will never measure it being both it's called collapsing the wave function so the wave function describes the quantum object it's just what we call it and you can think of it like schrodinger's cat Um, so the cat is half alive and half dead but when you open the box to look at the cat uh it's either alive or dead but when the box is closed it could exist. It's in a superposition, is so, what it's called. Okay. And again, it, we're, we're hitting this language barrier where it's it's difficult to describe uh, what's actually happening in a non-mathematical way. But one of the ways of explaining this is uh, through through the multiverse theory, where there are every time you collapse the wave function of some quantum object, so you observe a quantum object, uh, the universe splits. So if you observed a so now you're in universe A and a universe B, a whole separate universe B was created. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, stop, stop. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> so, so. Break, that, that is probably the most, biz- go. It, it's go bizarre. Um, it's not bizarre. It's just, it's, it's mind-blowing to think about. So basically, this thing is in a superposition of A and B, right? It's both A and B. Mm-hmm. And then you observe it, right? And when What is you- it? What, what is something, like, just give me an example, like. Uh, like, like you wanted just a general example or mm-hmm. like yeah, a, just a general example. So just like Schrodinger's cat, for example, right? Um, so the cat is you know dead or alive, like superposition of dead and alive, and then you go to look at the cat, and you see the cat is alive, right? So you've collapsed the wave function. Um, now Schrodinger's cat is kind of a you know mainstream media type of way of explaining it, but you, you've collapsed the wave function. But in the multiverse interpretation, basically there's a whole other universe that was created the moment you observed where the cat was actually dead. Now, this is an interpretation. This isn't, right. this isn't, this isn't like physics. This isn't reality. Yeah. I right. mean, there, well, okay, so there are physicists out there who like, you know, go with this interpretation and I'm, I'm not aware. Like, I, I mean, I haven't done that much research into you know, multiverse yeah. theory. Um, uh, Great but, episode of Family Guy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the multiverse. Yes. Great. One of the best. Um, but yeah, so this is out there. Like, you know, this is not... Don't, don't confuse this with, like, you know, hard physics. No, uh, I'm not. It's just... It, it's just the, the dirt... The further you dive into the possibilities, yeah. the more mind-blowing it becomes. Yeah. And I think that's what gets... That's what's getting people talking about it. That's why at work, 
in 2017 someone sharing this YouTube video with me. Mm-hmm. Whereas, because it's becoming... I think they're also sharing it because it sounds kind of like magic. Um. That's fair. <laughs> that That is a fair statement. It does sound like magic. It does sound like magic. And there is and, no magic. It's... Yeah, I mean, th- there is no, like, yeah, there is no magic. Magic is just physics you don't understand yet. Um, oh, okay. I like yeah. that. <laughs> so... This this multiverse thing, you know, it's just an interpretation. It doesn't affect the the actual like physics that you see, um, and the actual like experiments. Do you, you think do. it's possible that there's parallel universes? I mean, it's possible. Um, I I'm I'm very hesitant to comment on this because I don't want people to get the impression that there's a guy studying physics who thinks like there's definitely multiple universes out there. Um, in terms of physics, as at the moment, as far as I'm aware, there are people who are probably working on this that are much, much smarter than me. But as far as I'm aware, as a second-year grad student, um, <laughs> uh, it's, that's, that's not physics. Um, it's just an interpretation of uh, the laws of physics that we observe. Um, and Jordy Rose, you know, maybe he, he's, he's one of the guys who follows this interpretation, I suppose, based on what he says. And he's, he says that, okay, if quantum mechanics dictates that there are multiple universes, then having a quantum computer, which is basically controlled quantum mechanics, we can access these other quotation marks, parallel universes. Now, I, 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 I did not really like the way he explained that. Um, I'm not a fan of this whole parallel universe thing, but I think he was just trying to uh, give some sort of some sort of intuition to you know a, a non-physics possibility aud- yeah some sort of not intuition to a non-physics audience um as to what is going on within quantum mechanics and i would say take that with a grain of salt i that's actually comforting to hear yeah because i can't imagine someone in the next 10 years saying or in the next six years saying hey we found a parallel universe. So I grasp mean, he, that concept, everybody. He might be very well referring to a specific paper that he read. Um, I'm just saying that I have not. Right, that's fair. Yeah, that's I, fair. Yeah. Um, pred- prediction three. Prediction three. By 2028, 11 years from now, intelligent machines will exist that can do anything humans can do. And it will be done with a quantum computer. And it will be done with a quantum computer. Um. I mean, is that possible? So this so, is this is another one of those things where um, AI is a potential application for quantum computers. Um, again, we do we don't have a quantum computer, right? So it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. Right. Each each one of these predictions has has um, scaled upon its 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 predecessor, right? So yeah. first it's first it's get the quantum computer. Then we're going to find life on another planet and get there. Then we're going to see, and assuming everything is going along with what he's saying, then we uh, find a parallel universe, and then quantum computers play a role in AI so intelligent that it's okay. Uh, AI, put, you know, so intelligent that they can manipulate a human, and we won't be able to tell the difference. So, I mean, there are people working on AI. Um, that that's so AI is its, is its own thing, right? So, just normal classical AI, not using quantum computers, and that's you know that's that's going its own way. And then you know, Google is invested. They they have a quantum AI team. Yes, and that's actually why they bought D Wave's quantum annealer. Um, and AI, I mean. There are different classes of AI. 
Um, you can have a really dumb AI that is very good at one thing. Such as? Such uh, as? Building a... A driverless car. Right. Right. You know, a driverless car, I mean, it is intelligent and it is artificial, but it's only intelligent at driving the car. Right. It's not going to tell you how to cook a steak. <laughs> right. Um, and then you can also have uh, special purpose AIs for doctors. You know, it takes a blood sample and it can tell you if you have cancer or not. Um, and this is artificial intelligence. You know, it's it's we're, we're building machines that are able to intelligently, you know, decide something. And in terms of quantum computers, um, I mean, there are proposals out there for these things called quantum neural networks, which try and emulate the brain, how the brain works using quantum circuits. Um, but those are out there at the moment. The, the thing that Google bought, their quantum AI team bought, the D-Wave quantum annealer, again, coming back to this optimizer. So optimizing problems is, in a way, artificial intelligence in itself, right? You have your uh, assistant in your smartphone that's able to tell you where to go, when to leave, how to get there the fastest. There's traffic. You should take this route instead, right? So it's, it's still artificial intelligence. Now, it's not creating a human mind, but... I think in the near term, these optimization quantum computers uh, will probably be the things uh, that a quantum computer will relate to in terms of AI. Um, now, creating a sentient thing out of a quantum computer, that's one of those out there, out there things. We don't have a quantum computer yet. And do you even need a quantum computer necessarily to do that? Not necessarily. I mean... I, I don't research AI, so I don't know, right, but right. I'm, there are people working on normal, like classical circuits, not using quantum mechanics uh, to build AI. Yeah. Um, and, and neural networks. What's so exciting about science right now and just the times we're living in is every day there's new information. There's new, there's new studies being published. There's, I, I, you cannot go a day without recognizing the impact that science is having on AI, and then combining the fact that quantum computing with what we're already doing with a basic computer is incredible. And so, actually, that's a very good point that you just brought up. Um, people think that quantum computers are the, like the next big thing in terms of replacing all of our computers. You know, I'm going to have a quantum PC sitting right next to me at home. I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to run quantum games on my quantum graphics card. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's not happening. That's that's not how it works. Um, in fact, many of the more uh, reasonable proposals are these classical quantum hybrid com computers where you have the classical computer doing most of the work and then you tell, you say, the classical computer says, hey, quantum computer, I need help with this uh, very specific thing um, that you can do way better than I can. Can you help me? And it'll send it off to the quantum computer. Makes sense. Quantum computer will do its thing. Send kick the, it back. Kick it back and then the classical computer will... Hybrid is a word I hear every day for mm -hmm. everything. I mean, right? Like, even I mean, why throw away something that's been right developed for 60 years? You know, you should be able, you should take advantage integrate of it. both things. Exactly. Yeah. Integrate it. And, uh, you know, just, I'm just scrolling here while we're talking and, um, I was wanted to pull up something about Google and DeepMind and AI and Google's DeepMind is developing an AI capable of an imagination. Yeah, according as of this is as of yesterday. They have this like dream thing, right? Yeah, yeah Google Dream. Um, yeah, I mean I it's an imagine-based planning, basically. Yes, uh, I, I think they 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 did something really interesting a few years ago where they showed 
this uh, computer like, a lot of YouTube videos, and it was able to figure out what a cat looks like. Just by showing his videos. Showing it. That's how YouTube started, right? The guy wanted to put a video of his cat on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. So without telling the computer what a cat is, it was able to recognize. Well, that's what. So it learned, right? It learned. It learned. It learned. And that's the thing. Artificial intelligence is the ability to learn. So, So if you break that down, that just that term down, artificial intelligence, it doesn't necessarily have to be a computer. I mean, I mean, in a sense, everything's a computer, right? We all compute. We're all, we're all like, right? We, we are essentially we are a computer. Right? Yeah. our brains are computers. We're computers, and we're trying to then create a. We're trying to create a version of ourselves, essentially, right? With that AI. would be the ultimate goal, depending on who you talk to. Yes, and how and how far <laughs> we go with it. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you brought up that you showed an AI that you know AI saw a bunch of videos on YouTube can determine what the cat is. They're developing, you know, you can tell a robot your goal is to walk and then its legs and limbs and joints with no other programming, they're, they're figuring out how to walk and move around and, and, and go ahead. I want to, I want to emphasize here, like that, that's not magic. Like when people say the thing starts from nothing and then learns to walk, that makes it sound like it's. Like this thing is just magically somehow figuring out what walking is and how it needs to do it. Um, and basically what they do is they create a algorithm that, you know, that uh, comes up with some cost function, right? And it says, I want you to do what it takes to minimize, to optimize, to bring to optimize. back, to optimize that cost function. And the constraints that you provide to that thing basically um, tell it to, like, it pushes it in the direction of, oh, walking is what optimizes me. Got it. Right? Right. So to relate it to the quantum computer and the why the optimizers are, like, quantum annealers and how they, when they optimize things, why that's related to AI is many of the AIs that we develop today, or at least, for example, the one where it learns how to walk, um, is you basically give it some something that it wants to optimize and it figures out what conditions are necessary for it to be optimized. And in the specific case of the walking robot walking. <laughs> right. No. And, and that, and this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because you're right. It does sound like magic. Yeah. You, you, you say people are putting things into that. Like, it's not like you just turn on this machine and it figures out like you, you, for example, how did you learn how to walk, right? Your parents were like, you know, like tried to guide you to walk. They tried to optimize you to walk, right? Right. So they, 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 they put constraints around you, like, you know, tried to like... Maybe hold on to this. Hold on, yeah, hold or on I, to this. Or I also saw them walking, right? You saw them walking, right? I, I, I realized in my brain that the most efficient way... To get around is not crawling. Yeah, right. It's walking. Right. So we're bringing... So, so you're putting information into this thing. Right. And you're telling it to optimize. And... That's what it does. So I have a question. Yes. And it's gonna it's it's gonna take me a second to get it out here, but we talked we just said you watched your parents, their parents guided you. And the goal for this one device, let's say, is to walk. And at that time, me as a machine and computer was to learn my my goal was to learn how to walk. That's probably we walk is one of the first things that we learn how to do. I mean Yeah. Before we talk, before we start having all right, okay. So what if AI gets to the point where it's being pushed in the direction by its creator 
not just to walk? Like where does where does the limit go on AI in terms of its good versus evil use? I mean, it's kind of scary to think about the ability without constraints what AI could do, especially if it takes on a lifelike form. And I know that um, Elon Musk is not a fan. He is not a fan of AI. Whereas Mark 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 Zuckerberg is actually very very much against Elon's uh, stance. Mark he, Zuckerberg, depending on who you talk to, he's either the bringer of all <laughs> humanity together, and right, he's also could be looked at as taking the world down. In yeah. ter- right, everything is under his control. I mean, Facebook Facebook in itself is its own entity that is just consumed by so many it's consuming so many people so i mean what's your take on i don't mean to make this sound this like an interview but i just want to you know guide you into what do you think what do you think about ai and what do you think about its limits so i think the development of these you know like single purpose or special purpose ai um driving driverless driverless cars cars. doctors um you know just like processing data and uh, doing one specific thing um, is will be a huge benefit to society. Um, it's when we get to these multi-purpose uh, AIs. Um, now, I, I am not, I do not research AI and I, I don't know the specifics on how you even do this. I mean, to my best knowledge, it's you give the, the robot some sort of thing that it wants to, um, you know, optimize. And then that, that's, it, it tries to learn by doing that. Right. Um, these multi-purpose AIs, you know, it's something that we need to be careful about. And this is something that Elon Musk has also, you know, said on multiple occasions. Um, it can very quickly get out of control. And this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be researching them. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be, uh, uh, trying to advance the field of AI. All it means is that we need to be very careful about how we uh, how we proceed with uh, artificial intelligence once it gets to this, you know, n- not just single purpose, I'm a robot type thing. Um, if we're able, if we are actually able to create something that thinks, um, something that's able to you initially tell it to do something, but then it figures out that I can do more than this, right? Yeah, that is. I, the... I don't know how you do that. Right. Like, I don't know how you tell a computer to do that. Um, but I mean, eventually, that's where it has to go, right? Um, and once you get to something like that, it can. It will. He's afraid of it running amok. Yes, and I mean, it's extremely dangerous. I mean, it. it it will have a huge impact on society and it, it can have a massive benefit to all of us. But with things like that, you know, there's also a lot of danger. Um, and it, it could be nobody's fault, right? It's not right. like somebody's and that's, like maliciously right. trying to create and that's an the AI problem. to take over the world. And that's the problem. I it's don't just, think, I'd like to believe that, you know, there's many problems going on in the world right now. We don't even have to touch on them. But I don't think you'd like to believe that none of it started out malicious intent whether it's arguing over land or borders or or natural resources you don't want to you want to believe it didn't start out malicious it was just hey we're having this little conversation and here we are hundreds of years later and who knows if that's 
exactly what you're saying. Artificial intelligence takes on a mind of its own. It realizes I don't need just this goal. So what's his name? Demis Hassabus. So he's he's a creator in advanced artificial intelligence. And this is that conversation that you and I were talking about earlier where Elon Musk says he believes in the perils of artificial intelligence. And he's like, um, Elon Musk is like, I'm going to use SpaceX to go to Mars. And his and the other gentleman's response was, well, I'm just going to get there first or I'll just follow you there with AI. AI will follow you there. Mm-hmm. I don't even have to do anything. Once I create an artificial intelligence smart enough, I don't have to do it anymore. And that's that's so scary to think about. It's cool, I guess, from a sci-fi perspective. If you're watching sci-fi all day thinking about um, you know, fantasy, but when that fantasy becomes reality, it's scary. Yeah, and again, I'm, I really want to push on the point that like this isn't magic. Right. Like, there's an actual scientific methodological uh thing that's happening in the background that obviously is like you know it's hard to get across all the details but um it's it's not something from nothing right and the problem will come when uh the the artificial intelligence that we create realizes that, that it too can create wow right yeah so yeah, this- it, it, it too can do things that it wasn't told to do. So you and I are having this conversation. I, I'm just going to read this conversation as as described by Vanity Fair back in March between Elon Musk and, and Hassabis. Ready? So Musk explains that his ultimate goal at SpaceX was the most important project in the world, which is interplanetary colonization. And Hassabis replied that, in fact, he was working on the most important project in the world, developing artificial superintelligence. Musk countered that this was one reason we need to colonize on Mars so that if we have a bolt hole, so that it, it basically if AI goes rogue and turns on humanity, we, well, at least we're in a different place. And then Hassabis responds, well, I'll just simply, AI will just simply follow you to Mars. Now, that doesn't sound like much, right? That just sounds like a, a funny little conversation between two billionaire geniuses, right? Well, what happens if this becomes like a pissing contest, right? Like... <laughs> Oh, well, my project is the most important project in the world. Oh, no, no, no. My project is the most important project in the world. Well, I want to get to Mars. Well, I want to develop an AI smart enough to get to Mars before you get to Mars. And all of a sudden, it's Terminator. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I'm getting getting ahead of myself. I know. I'm creating the storyline in my head. But but seriously, um, that's a problem. I mean, so... Are we closer to getting to Mars with SpaceX or are we closer to AI that can get us to Mars? Uh, I mean, you don't have to. I know you don't really necessarily know the answer to that, but. I would say we'll probably get to Mars first. I agree. Um, but once you have. Colonize a, on Mars is a different story, once, though. Once you have a computer on Mars, then the AI can just, you know, beam itself over. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's besides the point. Um, yeah, the, the thing with AI is that, like, it's. It, it, there's a difference between being cautious and being i hate ai we shouldn't do it right no there's there's a balance there's a balance and i'm of the camp that ai is important and no matter how hard you try to stop science it will like science will happen and uh maybe it's a part of maybe it's a part of destiny that we're supposed to be exploring ai for a specific reason right maybe there's a reason like what is the, what is science all about it's it's our ability to keep pushing forward right keep- it's it's our ability to uh understand why things work the way they do and how we can take advantage of that yeah and it almost 
I almost want to believe that it all comes full circle. Like we we're, we're all here on this planet to try and use said algorithms and quantum computing and quantum uh, mechanics to try and figure out where it all came from and it all started. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, mean, it's one way to look at it. Kind of an aside, <laughs> but there's a field of study known as quantum biology uh, where people have proposed uh, once we actually have a quantum computer, which is, again, is, is a big if. We still big don't if, have it. Big if. Um, we have machines that use qubits, but again, not quantum, not full quantum computers. But can't yeah, stress what, that enough. Can't stress that enough. Uh, don't don't believe all the hype you see. Hype's good, but only to a certain degree. Hmm. Um, so yeah, once we have a quantum computer, we can simulate biological molecules, proteins, like amino acids, uh, you know, all these biological molecules, and maybe we can see how life formed. Right. Wow. Yeah, and that. That's incredible to think yeah. about, right? To, to, just to bring it back down to square, how you know what came first, right? How did we get here? Yeah, you know, like people don't think when they think biology, they're like biology, chemistry, and physics are all the same thing. But you know, physics explains everything, right? So it's just different levels of abstraction. So you know, even in biology, you know, when you go down to the inside your cells, and you know, it's it's quantum mechanics, right? They're they're molecules. Yes. And, um, we can use quantum computers to maybe figure out how life starts. What do you think? Um, what do you think your biggest takeaway? Like, you know, if we're talking, if the audience that's listening right now um, watched a video on quantum computing and they think there's a parallel universe on its way, and they think we can explain God in the next five years and maybe how it all comes together, what, based on your research and what what you do on a day to day basis through your grad program. What is the biggest takeaway that you want people to understand? So people need to realize that science is a rigorous thing. It's not just some fluffy, somebody said there's a parallel universe. Somebody says something and that that's just how it is. Um, there's a process to it. Um, and, you know, people need to understand that, you know, we're just not pulling things out of thin air. Um, that it just sounds cool, right? Um we are looking at, you know, the equations that describe the world and we're seeing certain things that come out of that. And we're saying, hey, this might be a parallel universe, maybe, right? Um, it's not just like physicists are crazy and parallel universes. <laughs> right, right. But uh, no, there's there's an actual, like, you know, there's a method to the madness. Um, and, and we need more of them. We need more scientists. We do need more scientists. We, ta- we touched on earlier uh, before the podcast, uh, the commercial, the commercial, the great GE commercial. Um, and, and as we, you know, GE's coming to South Boston, which is great, great which is company. Awesome, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if people saw it. I hope everyone saw it. Um, but, but if they didn't, but if they didn't, um, there was a commercial by GE, uh, where they presented this scenario, um, of a famous physicist in particular, they used, uh, Millie Dresselhaus, Mildred Dresselhaus, who recently passed away. But what was she known for? She was known as the queen of carbon science. Um, so she studied basically carbon molecules um, and the physics of carbon, uh, carbon physics, essentially. So what can you do with different arrangements of carbon? Um, and she was very, very well respected and one of the most cited scientists in the world. So she's, she's a big deal. And, you know, one of my... Uh, one of the people that I look up to when I think of, you know, I want to be a good scientist. Like, 
she was a very good scientist. And uh, so very recently, a few months ago, before she passed away, GE released this commercial where they tried to present the scenario, what if we treated our scientists uh, like celebrities, you know, and rather than people saying like, oh, I want to go and become like Justin Bieber or become like this famous football player, you know, I want to be like Millie, right? And that was a very powerful ad for me. Um, and I hope people, the people who watched it, and if you haven't watched it, you could probably Google it. I mean, I saw it on YouTube. Um, I hope the people who watch it like understand that, you know, science is the life you live is thanks to science. And we take it, even scientists take it for granted. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very important to support science and to recognize how important it is. Yeah, and I, we were, you know, I was just uh, right before the podcast. I dropped, uh, you know, I was with my cousin, and she was here from Richmond, and she was doing a project at Harvard, where she, at 15 years old, was developing. Uh, she was trying to figure herself out, and I don't mean in terms of you know herself as a 15 year old, but whether she wanted to go into research for neuroscience or psychology and. I, we need more programs like that. That needs to be advertised more. Um, more people need to be involved with how humanity exists together, and also like the future of it. I mean, we talk about res- we talked about resources earlier, and you know, we need engineers, we need scientists uh, more than we need a Justin Bieber. And that's nothing against a Justin Bieber. I mean, yeah, I mean, we need entertainment too, right? Uh, we need life without fun is. <laughs> Right. What is life without fun? <laughs> I, but there needs to be a balance. Everything needs to. Everything needs to. Uh, you know, it's like we're on the uh, the edge of a razor blade, right? With in terms of balance. But you I don't feel- need to. Uh, you don't need to be a scientist. You just need to appreciate it. I and, 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 and be scientifically literate. You know, understand what science is about. And that's why we're here today. I've I've become in the. We've been. We spent the last three hours together. I have become a small fraction of more science literate today and if everybody kind of appreciated this a little bit more and maybe youtubed quantum computing from a graduate degree uh a graduate's perspective instead of tmz (laughs) right um you know i I i think i don't want to say like the world would be a better place but I think, I think more appreciation. I think I think the scales in the last couple of years with uh, social media and um, just the the obsession with celebrities. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of us are guilty of it. I, I you know I can't say that I'm not guilty of of you know trash TV here and there, but something I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what it is, but something clicked inside of me in the last couple of months, and just maybe the people I'm we're surrounded by. Maybe just being in Boston. I mean, some of the best universities are yeah. here. Are, they're right here. They're right here. And it, I've become more appreciative of it. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to be here right now. And I wanted to – well, we kind of touched – we touched on, honestly, everything that I wanted to touch on today. I I'm, I mean, we can talk about maybe the near term uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. So we were talking about, you know, I'm, I'm getting uh, I'm getting pre pre podcast talk confused <laughs> with what's being recorded because we're already another hour in. Yeah. Which is. Incredible. Oh, wow. Yeah. OK. Yeah. No, it's good. No, there's no <laughs> I have no time. I just we can do this all day. I just. Uh, yeah. Let's let's talk about before we break. 
let's talk about what quantum computing can do near like maybe make some of your own predictions in the next five ten years that are realistic from your perspective so um one of the things that you need to have a a quantum computer um, is what we call fault tolerance and essentially what that means is these these qubits they're they're not very good in the sense that they lose their information um, after some time so basically i've prepared my qubit to be one and after i don't know like 50 microseconds um it's flipped to zero without me telling it to flip to zero so basically the information was lost and we need to we need to we need to build quantum computers that are fault tolerant you know that that can be uh robust against errors i mean if your qubits are so like have so many errors then the computation you do is not going to be correct right right um so w- one of the things that I mentioned earlier on is uh, Peter Shor. Um, the first thing that I said that he did was this Shor's, Shor's algorithm. But another thing that he did was introduce the notion of quantum error correction. Um, that is c- creating algorithms to correct for these quantum errors. Um, and this, was, this, this is basically what made quantum computing a, a viable thing. Um, like even Because all quantum systems are prone to errors. And if you can't correct for them, you'll never be able to make a good enough quantum computer. You're, you're, you'll just have so much loss of information that the computation you do will just be useless. Um, so when he came up with the, this first proposal for uh, error correction algorithm that opened up a whole new field of theorists who are now working on uh, quantum error correction algorithms that we can implement in a small-scale quantum computer. So before we have a quantum computer, we, in order to have a quantum computer, we need to have a fault-tolerant quantum, quantum computer. And implementing these error correction things is very difficult and very resource intensive. So we won't have a fault tolerant quantum computer for a long time. Um, I don't even see us having it in the next 20 to 30 years, um, to be honest, like a, a truly fault tolerant quantum computer. I mean, obviously, there's, there might be a breakthrough like 10 years from now that just makes it very, very easy uh, to do this. But from the perspective of today, it, it's still a very difficult problem. Now, then you might be asking, okay, you can't have a quantum computer in 20 to 30 years. What do you mean you're going to do something in 5 to 10 years, right? That makes no sense. Um, Well, you can do what's known as, um, you can do quantum computing that doesn't require error correction. So basically do small small algorithms that uh, basically do the computation quickly enough. So they're not long computations. They just do it very quickly. Uh, They get you the answer before the qubits kind of just die. Uh, and when I say die, I mean lose the information. The qubits themselves can be reset. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just blow up. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so uh, there are proposals for doing, like, you know, computation with algorithms and programs that finish the computation faster than the qubits lose the information. So one example of this would be the quantum simulation that I was speaking of earlier, Um to simulate materials or to simulate quantum systems. Um, essentially, you can write down the description of a quantum system and then translate that into a physical hardware circuit. And then that circuit will follow the model that you built it to follow. And you can look at how that circuit behaves and gain insight um, as to what the, uh, 
material or system that you were looking to describe in the first place, what that might do. Um, so for example, if you have some interesting molecule um, that you want to understand how it works, I can build some circuit that, you know, vague, uh, gen that models that molecule, see how the circuit does its thing, and now I know how that molecule does its thing. So these small-scale quantum algorithms, we can, there are people thinking about doing um, these quantum simulation of, you know, small things. Um, now, it might, you might be like, why not just do that on a classical computer, which is just it's so much bigger than this quantum computer. And that's because even these small uh, molecules or materials, quantum mechanical systems, um, can be extremely difficult for a classical computer to simulate without making approximations. Um, but this quantum computer can do it. it it's built to do it, right? It, 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 it's its purpose. It's its purpose, right? It's specifically engineered to do this one thing. Um, so I, that's what I think. I think in the next uh, five to ten years, we'll be seeing these sort of uh, quantum simulations, small scale. So we can't simulate everything, but maybe sm smaller things we can. And also quantum annealers. Um, so that's why D-Wave is making their quantum annealer right now. Quantum annealers don't need error correction. Uh, well, okay, I shouldn't say they don't need. They can operate without error correction. It, it, it'd be nice if there was error correction, um, but they can operate without error correction. And that is what D-Wave is doing. So you, you create some problem that you want to optimize. You put it into this quantum computer. It'll have errors. So maybe it won't give you the most optimum solution, but maybe it'll give you something close, right? And if it can give me something better than the classical computer, faster than the classical computer can do it. Then it's done its job. Then it's done its job. Maybe it didn't do the best job, and then people will work on trying to make it better and better and better, but at least we have something to use it for. What do you think is a practical application? What do I think is a pre of a optimizer or well just um, I, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier um, we talked about agriculture oh yes so one of the things that gets thrown around um, this one might, might not be near term but one of the things that gets thrown around uh, by physicists uh, as a pr potential use for quantum computers in terms of simulation is uh, creating new fertilizer. And you might be like, why would I want new fertilizer? <laughs> and the reason is because to create fertilizer uh, industrially, um, it takes very high temperatures and pressures and therefore lots of energy. So it's a very inefficient process. And it's, I think it's known as the Haber process, which was invented like 100 years ago. And we haven't had any. And we haven't perfected. We haven't. Um... We haven't made anything better since. Okay. Um, of course, I'm not an expert in that's, <laughs> creating no, that's fertilizer. Fine. You don't have to be. Yeah. Um, so this is the internet. Anything goes. Anything goes. Yeah. Um, so, what one thing that we might use a quantum computer to do is, um, or at least is proposed, is there are bacteria that live in the ground that are able that to basically create the same do do this process called nitrogen fixation, which is the process that creates fertilizer, and they're able to do it by themselves very easily underground, and this has to be this is has to be done because of some some molecule we call a catalyst um, that just makes the job easy but we don't know what that catalyst is um, so or we don't know how it would operate 
So maybe we can use a quantum computer to model this one molecule um, and figure out how it works. And then maybe we can improve the efficiency of creating fertilizer and extend extend that to making more food for the ever-growing population. Now, that doesn't sound as sexy as uh, alternate universes. (laughs) It does not sound as sexy. But it sounds promising. I'm sure it makes a lot of people feel better about... What um again? This is quant- I know I know this is not- one of those proposals that you know like we give. It's a very of, practical application. It's too. a very practical application, and it might not come for for a while. Like you know, we're not promising this will happen in ten years, right? Like we we believe that we're going to get the quantum computer. That's why we're working on it. But you know, it takes time. Well, we like to we like to think of science as uh being proactive, but we're a very reactive society. So I can say that uh. If we needed more food and this was a way to get there, <laughs> I'm sure we'd be dumping a lot more money and resources into it. Just as an example, let alone food, just like climate change. Climate, now, right. now you're using less energy. Uh, Simulate new materials for better solar panels. Um, like it's just you know it's a Pandora's box. Once you have this new kind of computer, it opens up the possibilities. We should create you and all I. All sorts of. We things. should create a bumper sticker and sell it uh, instead of it just saying you know we'll expound where it says uh, no farms, no food. We'll just say. Uh, no farms, no food, no science, no nothing, or, something. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or no anything, no anything, no anything. We need him. We need scientists. Uh, no, I, I mean, this has been an incredible conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I don't think we're done. I think I, I almost want to do a check-in with you. <laughs> In like three years or something. No, I mean, well, <laughs> let's say, let's say a breakthrough happens. I want dibs on. Uh, I want dibs on the, on, on the deets, and I want to put it out. And uh, so, actually, um, one of Google's big claims um, is that by the end of the year, they're going to demonstrate a quantum processor that it does something, right? Something. Something. And when I say something, I mean it could be the most useless comp- computation in the world, but does something faster than a classical computer, just to show that you know, like quantum computers actually can do something faster, right? So that's that's known as quantum supremacy. Um, now, it'd be nice if it was something useful, but I think the first step is to demonstrate something. Um, so they, they, they say, they've claimed um, that they will demonstrate using a 51 qubit processor, 51, no, sorry, 49, seven by seven grid um, qubit processor, um, by the end of the year, that will demonstrate something faster. It'll do some computation that's faster than a classical computer, um, and that w- that w- that will be very interesting to see um, if, if they're able to do that by the end of the year. What do you think it'll be? The problem? Yeah, I think it'll probably be some problem that they contrive to make it extremely hard for a classical computer, but extremely easy for a quantum computer. And not necessarily a useful problem, but I, I, I mean, I can't really tell you what. What, what is that called in the world of science, where it's, uh, it's almost um, proof of principle. Proof of principle. It's they're trying to demonstrate a proof of principle, and you know that's what we do in physics. You know, we're trying to when we when we when we try and create a create, we find the laws of nature, and then we try and do something with it. You know, we could say here's a proof of principle of something you can do with this. So that's what Google's doing, and I think, I think IBM is also says they will have, I forget if it's 49 or 51, something like that, around 50 qubit device processor, superconducting qubit processor by 2018. 
Um, yeah, they were um, – in 2016, IBM was running a 5-quivit computer, and now they're on to uh, 16. They're on to 16. So, And IBM, we talked about this earlier, they're in the background. They're not getting all the news and the press. They're, they're not as sexy as Google. They're but, not as sexy as Google. But they're grinding it out. Yes, and they're, they're doing – a lot of their, lot of their uh, marketing goes to uh, the Watson, Watson. computer. But uh, they're, they're doing a lot of work in quantum computing. Watson can do your taxes. Watson can, <laughs> Watson can uh, help scout for basketball players, right? I, I mean, I guess they are out there. It's just, you, you know what it is? Google just has their hands in so many different things. And Google is something we use every single day. You yeah. see it. Every see time it. you open up your internet browser, Google's there. Google, Google is news. the internet. Google is the internet, right. Yeah. Can you, there is no internet without Google. Can you imagine being <laughs> uh, the AOL guys now? Or like... Or even Yahoo. Who, does anybody use Yahoo anymore? Just imagine a world where Bing is your only option. Oh. <laughs> so when I start my computer up at work, I'm forced to use Bing until I oh, just I'm so sorry. wait. Just this year, tell me if this isn't a conspiracy, right? Uh-huh. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I, I do have a thought on this. It's 2017, and Google Chrome was just installed on our work computers due to, um, you know. I don't know whatever I don't know even what the government excuse is but we just received Google Chrome and all of a sudden Google Chrome has mysteriously just been taken off and uninstalled from various computers and if you want it back you have to call and get it installed <laughs> otherwise you have to use Internet Explorer and Bing and it is terrible I'm so sorry <laughs> why <laughs> why these are first world problems right <laughs> I have to use Bing it's terrible though. Yeah, it no, is. it's no, it, it, it just doesn't work as well. It yeah. just doesn't work as well. And Google is it. Google's it. And so I, I think because of how much we use it. Do you? I don't. You probably don't remember this, but you definitely don't remember this. Gmail, you had to be in, invited to. Oh yeah, I was invited to Gmail. I made my account when I was like ten. Oh, you did. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here at MIT. Of course I, I did. I was 21. <laughs> we were doing this. We. You're basically 10 years ahead. Well, no, <laughs> I'm 10 years behind. That's so funny. Yeah, Actually, I'm, my cousin invited me. So That's so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, yeah, I don't think we're done here, though. I'd like to uh, – I would – like I said uh, before the show, I'm a big car guy. I would love to get one of these uh, one of these vloggers on hmm. uh, and maybe not tear them to shreds. I, I shouldn't say that because I, I, I do I, – I guess I'm a little jealous of the work that they're doing. They, you know – Bunch of money, nice camera, the ability to buy a Lamborghini, and uh, boom, you have a show on YouTube with millions of followers. I, I would like to talk to somebody who maybe grinded it out a little bit and has a successful you know, automotive column. I, I used to write an automotive column for uh, a small paper in New Jersey, uh, the Atlantic Highlands Herald, the New Jersey's first online-only uh, <laughs> newspaper. But a uh, little plug right there for Atlantic Highlands Herald. But uh, I'd love to have your take on, uh, you know, on physics and just the, you know, what car, what, what basically rubber on tires and what uh, just mechanics are doing to defy physics in terms of what cars can do nowadays. I mean, we're getting to the point where cars are becoming so powerful that uh, the rate of, of quickness, not speed necessarily, but the rate of quickness is being limited by physics at this point. So you have the Dodge Hellcat, which has... 707 horsepower mm-hmm. going to two wheels what's the most important part the wheels the, the the rubber that hits the road right so they're coming up with all of these different ways to maximize traction and we're getting to the point where tesla yeah has the quickest vehicle 
because of things zero like torque. Or, sorry, oh, instant torque. Instant torque. Yeah. It's at zero RPM. Yeah. Right. So instant torque, uh, the the fact that all of its motors, which mm-hmm. are you know uh, batteries essentially, they're all down, sitting low, low center of gravity. Yep. They can have a perfect weight distribution with the driver in the car. So maximum traction, all four wheels being driven. So they're just they're, – that's it's not just quick because of power. It's quick because of efficiency. And you also have a computer figuring out uh, how much traction there is and you know how fast can you go with the current levels of traction and all sorts of yeah, fancy and, things. Yeah, and Chevrolet has uh, similar computers on their Corvettes and Camaros with their launch control. The difference is they're still using a big, heavy iron block up front. Okay, it may be aluminum. Don't, don't kill me out there. <laughs> uh, a big, hefty piece of metal of some sort sitting in the front of a car – trying to route all of that to the rear right. where, and, and you're limited by traction. So I'd, I'd love to dive into all of that one day. I, I find that fascinating. And, um, yeah. So if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to ask you questions, cause I, I think we killed it on this. Yeah. I really do. I think it was so very informative. And I, I would imagine people who are interested, who listen, will have questions. Is it okay if they reach out to you? Sure, they can just shoot me an email. Okay, I'll put your, I'll put, uh, I'll put the email address in the bottom of the link when I post this on iTunes. So, any other final closing things you wanted to talk about before we go? I mean, I mean, I guess like, can't stress enough. It's not magic, right? Can't stress enough. It's not magic. I mean, there is, there is a uh, physics going on behind the scenes, and uh, you know, there's a lot of hype in terms of quantum computing as well. Um, hype is good though, right? Hype is good. Hype is good. Hype is very good because it gets people interested. It's free marketing. It's, yes, but it's also Which is very hard to come by. That is very true, but it's also important to look at the details and uh, understand that um, you know sometimes these uh, non-science uh, sources for news stretch. Oh, fake news! <laughs> fake news, right? A different form of fake news. D- different, different kind of fake news. That's <laughs> not not really fake. More of a exaggerated exaggerated well um, isn't well that's, that's but yeah so quantum topic. computers you know we're getting there uh we think there will be some killer applications in the next five to ten years um we probably won't have the quantum computer that you know breaks all of cryptography in the next five to ten years that'll probably come at some point uh, but we do have some ideas in terms of these quantum annealers for optimiz- optimization and then how optimization relates to ai or just optimization in general um and then also sim- simulating quantum materials and quantum models and, you know, just learning new physics. So using your quantum computer to um, study physics that you otherwise couldn't study using a classical computer. And then using that, you can make all sorts of things. So yeah. it's, a, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. <laughs> it's a big thing. It's a lot to tackle. Yes. And we, we, we did pretty good in an hour and 20 minutes, I'll tell yes. you that. Well, if I have anything to say, it's uh, get out there, meet your neighbors, talk to the people that are fighting the good fight in terms of science, moving it forward, and thank thank a scientist. If you have an opportunity to thank a scientist, thank one because they science is everything. It's all around us. Don't it, be intimidated. Don't, and that was you know that's that's a really good point. I was actually very intimidated to talk to you today. Yeah. And I, I told you I you know I, I absolutely respect what you're doing, but. I feel like this conversation has kind of broken some of that down for me. I mean, I'm not just going to walk up to any scientist and be like, hey, man, you want to have a chat? Because I don't, mostly because I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I do feel much more, uh, I, feel, I feel like I'm tapped in a little bit more. And that was the whole point. So, all right. So more details will be in the links. Um, 
in the iTunes description. You can also find us at Unzerped, U-N-Z-I-R-P-P-E-D, on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can write us at gmail, unzerped at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, this has been great, and I uh, look Thanks forward for to talking again. All right, great. Just tuned in Unzerped. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Unzerped. Unzerped. Real people. Real conversation. See you next time.